Chapter 16 of Charles Simeon by Henley Mole. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Last Months. I bring the reader to the year 1836, and the time drew near that Israel must die. Simeon's health had been broken occasionally by severe attacks of gout. In 1834, in February, he had been so ill that his death was reported in Cambridge. He writes to Daniel Wilson, who had gone out to Calcutta in 1832, that the illness had been a time as to the soul, not indeed of joyful emotions, but of the peace of God. Quote, in God and in God alone I have all that I can need, and therefore my eyes are turned to him always, him exclusively, him without the shadow of a doubt. Were I to look at him through the medium of my own experience, it would be like looking at the sun through the medium of the waters, the sun would appear to move as the water undulates, whereas when viewed in himself alone, he is uniformly and steadily the same without any variableness or shadow of turning. The same deep rest in God breathes itself into another letter about this time to the same friend. Quote, that you want a grant and an adni, I greatly regret, but their God you have, and more you cannot have. In truth, I love to see the creature annihilated in the apprehension and swallowed up in God. I am then safe, happy, triumphant, and I recommend to you to enter into the chambers of all his glorious perfections, and to shut the doors about you, and there abide till he shall have accomplished all the good purposes of his goodness, both in you and by you. Nothing less than a mutual indwelling of God in us, and of us in God, will suffice. Beyond that we want nothing." But he recovered considerably. Late in 1835 he writes again to Wilson that he has been, quote, working double tides at Cambridge for seven weeks, and at Brighton, in Mrs. Elliot's house, one. Through mercy I am for ministerial service stronger than I have been at any time this thirty years, preaching at seventy-six with all the exuberance of youth, but looking for my dismission daily, end quote. The letters are as many and as interesting as ever. One beautiful answer of loving casuistry to his friend Mary Elliot, is a true compliment to the words just quoted, in which he tells Wilson of Calcutta of his profound peace in God. Quote, in your letter of this morning you express a fear that you may love your dear mother or a friend too much, and I am anxious to correct that idea without loss of time. First, because it is a source of disquiet to the conscience, and next, because it is an error which almost universally prevails in the Church of God. That we may show our love improperly, I readily grant, but that we can love one another too much, I utterly deny, provided only it be in subserviency to the love of God. I think I have explained to you that word fervently. See that ye love one another with a pure heart. Its precise meaning is intensely. No two words in any two languages more exactly agree than intensely does with the original. If then our love be with a pure heart, this alone were sufficient to establish the point. Christianity does not encourage apathy, it is to regulate, not to eradicate, our affections. It admits of their full operation, but tempers them as to their measure and sanctifies them to the Lord. I have often been comforted by knowing that Lazarus and his sisters were peculiarly beloved of their Lord, and that John was an object of his more than ordinary attachment. And from hence you will see that, if I have written this for your instruction, I have had an eye also to my own vindication, if I should appear to err in the discharge of the most delightful of all duties." but I will not delay this, that I may show at least that, if love be a crime, there are few more guilty than your friend, see Simeon, end quote. 
Earlier in the year, he had described himself as, quote, only a poor pensioner soldier wearing the king's uniform, and just twice a week attending the parade and discharging the domestic exercise that has been assigned, end quote. Yet soon after writing so, he undertook and carried out a visitation of some of the churches in the patronage of his trust, a journey of 500 miles to Bath, Hereford, Cheltenham, Birmingham, Lichfield, Delaston, and Darley Dale. On the way, he heard from Cambridge that he was, quote, appointed to preach before the university in November, end quote. Not often in the history of the Cambridge pulpit has the office of select preacher been committed to a man far advanced in his 77th year. An office which in those days, as no longer now, implied the delivery of a course of four sermons, but Simeon at once accepted the nomination, indeed he had expected it, and was already armed with the manuscripts completed for delivery. Mr. Carras, in a little volume, published as lately as 1887, makes special mention of this early preparation. Quote, His power of rapid composition and masterly discussion of texts was exhibited in a remarkable manner at the close of 1835. One of the proctors, a fellow of his own college, requested to be permitted to nominate him as select preacher for November the next year. Mr. Simeon was much moved at this privilege proposed to him at his advanced age, but said he must decline the kind offer, as he did not expect to live so long. But supposing, said his friend, that we have the happiness to retain you here amongst us a little longer, as we fondly hope, you will not then refuse us? Upon this, Mr. Simeon gave his consent and said, I will at once begin to prepare the four sermons. And so he did. For I went to him soon after, when he had already composed the first sermon, which he read over to me, and told me to come again the next day, and I should hear the second, and that also was ready when I called, and so again the third and fourth, all within a week, and then the first sermon was improved and entirely rewritten. The subject of the course was well fitted to be the last of his life, a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ, Colossians 2 verse 17. I have in my keeping the four manuscripts written out in full in a firm hand, and dated by anticipation, November 6th, 13th, 20th, and 27th, 1836. They contain a plain, strong statement of the prophetic import of the ceremonial of the Old Testament, on the lines of interpretation authorized by the epistle to the Hebrews. All is carefully worked out and put in order, and a table of contents is written at the end of the first manuscript. It is moving and instructive to see how, at the very end of his course, he still rests where he had first found refuge in his great need, at the atoning sacrifice. One sentence in the second sermon is an almost verbal echo of those words of Bishop Thomas Wilson's, which had carried the message of hope to his soul in 1779. Quote, the ritual of the law was to give to the Jewish people, as by a shadow, proceeding and projected by the substance, some views of a saviour, and of the way in which a repenting and believing sinner might be saved. The most ignorant Jew, if interrogated how he was to obtain mercy at God's hands, might, without a moment's hesitation, answer, by sacrifice to be sure, and by means of a victim dying in my stead. End quote. Early in August he returned to Cambridge. Quote, this day week, he writes from Darley, July 29th, I shall, I hope, every hour be getting nearer to my dear people and to my blessed home. I am almost counting the hours till I reach my sweet abode. But from the first day I set off to the present hour, I have been as highly favoured as a mortal and sinful being can well be. My intercourse has been with the excellent of the earth, and every one of them striving to the utmost of their power to show me kindness for the Lord's sake. If you could have seen my meetings anywhere and my partings at Hereford and Lichfield, you would have known a little what love is. End quote. 
In a letter to Archdeacon Hodson, August 8th, he speaks of his ministrations in his church. Quote, Yesterday I preached to a church as full as it could hold, and partook of the Lord's Supper in concert with a larger number than has been convened together on such an occasion in any church in Cambridge since the place existed upon earth. Before I came to the living, I attended once at Trinity Church to hear on some occasion a very popular preacher, and... As I then never turned my back upon the Lord's Supper, I stayed during the administration of it, and was myself one of three, who besides the parson and clerk formed the whole number of the communicants. So greatly has the Church of England been injured by myself and my associates. Quote. The day after writing to Hodson, another correspondent claimed him, quote, a person under deep mental distress. End quote. His answer closes thus, quote, I have no wish to know your name, it is sufficient for me that you are a fellow sinner in distress. The Lord, even our great high priest, has your name written upon his breastplate, and that is my consolation when I am constrained through forgetfulness to express my intercessions generally. When, if I were able to spread before my God the names and states of all for whom I have been desired to pray, I would gladly do it. I hope with tender sympathy to spread your case before him, and I entreat the favour of you to remember at the throne of grace one who if he be not distressed like you, needs quite as much the prayers and intercessions of others in his behalf, even your faithful servant, C. Simeon. The last sermon in Trinity Church was preached on Sunday, September 18th. The text was 2 Kings 10, verse 16, the incident of Jehu and Jehonadab. The manuscript notes, written in the same firm hand as ever, give a full outline of the treatment of the subject. Some sentences are significant in the light of the occasion. Quote, it is not sufficient for any man to run well for a season only. We must endure to the end if ever we would be saved. Whatever your attainments may be, and whatever you may have done or suffered in the service of your God, you must forget the things that are behind, till you have actually fulfilled your course and obtained the crown. End quote. Here let us pause a little, to look as it were at this old man, as once more he leaves the north porch of Trinity Church and walks back to King's College. We observe his face, his bearing, his dress. He holds his head erect, almost more than erect. His aquiline nose and prominent chin are full of character. His whole aspect seems to say cheerfully, Nitor in adversum. His stature is middle, but his upright pose makes him look almost tall as he steps out quickly homeward. He wears knee-breeches and cloth gaiters, the statutable dress of every resident of the university when he was young. Now, in 1836, the garb only of old-fashioned old men and such his headgear is also a kind of short shovel hat. His Master of Arts gown is large and full, and under his arm we can see a bulky umbrella, which indeed still exists, long treasured as a dear relic by an aged parishioner. The old clergyman is no dignitary, nor has he ever dreamt of dignities in the church, but he has won a sure place among the servants who enter into the joy of their Lord, and he has gathered around him here, before as yet he passes in there, a great moral authority and dignity. He has been the implement in divine hands by which the highest blessings have been brought directly to a multitude of hearts, and indirectly to innumerable numbers, even in the most distant regions. As regards the Church of England, his dearly beloved mother church, he has proved himself one of her truest servants and most effectual defenders. Perhaps more than any other one man who ever arose within her pale, he has been the means of showing, in word and in life, that those Christian truths, which at once most abase and most gladden the soul, 
as it turns, in no conventional sense of the words, from darkness to light, from death to life, from self to Christ, are not the vagaries of a few fanatical minds, careless of order and of the past, but the message of the Church, the tradition of her noblest teachers, the breath and soul of her officers and orders. He has shown, in another direction, under conditions of peculiar and difficult experiment, that the converted life is, in its genuine development, a life of self-discipline, of considerateness for everyone around, of courtesy and modesty, of hourly servitude to established duty, and of that daylight of truthfulness without which no piety can possibly be wholesome. Shall I attempt an estimate of the exact relation between Simeon's work and that great movement towards a more positive ecclesiasticism which, already before he died, had set in within the Anglican borders? I will not venture upon detail, it would be interminable. But, speaking very briefly, I may say that from one side a line of sympathy may be traced between the two. So far as the movement which arose at Oxford was a reaction from an overdrawn individualism in religion and an excess of the subjective spirit, there was much in Simeon's thought and teaching which struck a concord with it. He loved ancient order and solemn ordinances, and he magnified the office of the Christian ministry. He greatly desired to see not merely more energy in individual Christians, but more life and power in the English church as such. He was, as we have seen, decidedly and thoughtfully a churchman. The evangelical revival of the 18th century found a certain defect supplied in the school of Simeon, its earlier leaders, with really few exceptions, were by no means careless of the essential sacredness of order and cohesion, but they found themselves often in circumstances where at least there seemed to be a need of disorder. Simeon, one with them in main spiritual principles, always in quest, like them, of individual conversions, was led both by his situation and his reflections to a more distinct sense than most of them had felt of the claims of corporate and of national religious life and in this respect he would have found much to attract his interest and sympathies towards the Oxford movement in its earlier phases. There is another side, however, to consider. That movement drew much of its great strength from its assertion of truths forgotten or imperfectly remembered, and which were the true complement of others made prominent by what had gone before. But I am not enough of an optimist to think that this was all, that the agitations of the past fifty years have been due to nothing but a revived assertion of a perfectly true ideal of the Christian Church and its work, and to hostility to that assertion. I hardly need say that, in many important respects, it was not continuity or development which led from the evangelical to the Oxford revival, but a definite repudiation by the Tractarian leaders of some of the chief principles of the evangelicals. The theory of the Church, the relation between the Church and Scripture, and the doctrine of justification, were handled by the Oxford writers, not so as to develop and supplement the teaching of the other school, but so as to counteract it. But I only thus state the case, and then avow my personal conviction that Simeon's conception of the scale and relations of the great Christian truths was to a remarkable degree faithful, not only to the Reformation theology, but to that of the New Testament. As that oldest of old fashions, change, persists. Many things may come to be modified in religious usage, and even in the expression of religious thought. But I believe that no essential modification can be made in what was Simeon's characteristic message without a sorrowful loss to the church and to the Christian. He venerated order and authority, but he always also believed and said with living conviction that the supreme religious necessity is that the individual should know God in Christ, that without the blood of the atonement there is no remission, that without the effectual work of the heavenly spirit there is no divine life and love in man, and that humble reliance on God in his word, that is to say faith, 
is the immediate way to receive remission and new life. I dare to say that he was true to the prophets and apostles in not only saying these things, but placing them in the foreground of his teaching. But we have followed Simeon to his college through the gathering shadows of that Sunday evening of September. He has walked up Market Street, and across or along the then-contracted market place, and past St. Mary's Church, perhaps with a thought of his approaching turn as preacher there, and so beneath the gateway of kings, and across the lawn of that majestic court, and up by the saint's rest to his quiet rooms. He will never take that walk again. End of chapter 16